Action! Welcome to Torn Stubbs, the Trash Movie Podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcast at Trash, which can be found at movetotrash.co.uk and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. Shot, the psycho-spiritual mantra of rock is a documentary directed by Barnaby Clay and is all about Mick Rock. He's the man who photographed Sid Barrett and Lou Reed. David Bowie, Blondie, The Sex Pistols, and so many more. But he is more than just the man who shot the 70s. He's clearly a deeply spiritual creative who has a personal story that's every bit as compelling as the people he's photographed. And that's what the documentary focuses on. Did you know much about Mick Rock before you sat down to watch the film? I had never, ever heard of him before in my life. And when it started, I was like, who is this guy? He's like this kind of tall, Jim Henson, Muppety kind of gravelly voiced guy with like this shock of brown hair and sunglasses, even though he's like in a pitch black room. <laughs> I was like, who is this guy? And, and he's like, yeah, my name is Mick Rock. And I was like, loving it. Did you think that maybe it was like a mockumentary? I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea what this was about. It, you know, it starts off with him. It's grainy black and white footage of him putting his camera together and getting ready for a shoot. And it's all kind of quite dreamy. And um, yeah, it's almost like you're entering into like a seance with him. It's just really quite unusual. And then you re- then I discovered that kind of the story is essentially him. Mm. It's all about who this guy is um, that you haven't necessarily heard of, but my God, you've seen his pictures. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. You had, you recognized a fair few of his pictures, oh, right? Of course. Like the, the Queen one with the four of them in the light. That's yeah. one of the most famous pictures of a rock band ever committed to film, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, and Bowie live on stage and Blondie, um, you know, with that hair kind of going crazy and that that just kind of energy that she had. And um, Debbie Harry, you mean? Debbie Harry, sorry. I love it when people say Blondie, I but know. they actually mean Debbie Harry. She is Blondie, though. <laughs> she really. is, yeah. Um, no, I, so no I, I had never heard that name before. Um, I assume you have because you're a photographer, so you know exactly who he is. Mick Rock is one of the reasons I am a photographer. Oh, really? Yeah. So I've I've grown up with his images and and I just I find it I find his work so inspiring and the reason that my work is so at times loose and grainy and gritty is because his work is loose and grainy and gritty. Yeah. And if I I have moments where like all creatives where I get a bit insecure or a bit unsure of what I want to do on the shoot I just think well what would Mick Rock do? All I want to do is have some fun. Yeah. That's, that's like his mantra, isn't it? Yeah. It's like he was like the, the original party wild child slash photographer. <laughs> it's like so weird. But he but, is. He, you know, he was, he, he said it. He wasn't on the outside looking in. He was on the inside looking out. He was just part of the group. He was yeah. best mates with Bowie and best mates with Lou Reed and best mates with Iggy. So he had the access. They yeah. trusted him. He's like the most famous person you've never heard of. Within, that's, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Within that kind of that kind of um, you know environment, yeah, like, you know who is you know who David Bowie is, you know who Lou Reed is, and then Mick Rock. You're like, no, oh, well, he sounds like someone I should know about because he sounds like he's called Mick Rock for God's sake. Yeah, the name. Um, it's almost like he was destined 
to yeah. be a rock photographer. Which he absolutely believes. Yeah. Like the, there's a great moment where um, he talks about his mother and how she decided that he had to go to Cambridge to study. Mm-hmm. And so he did. And then, you know, he, he picked up a camera when he was kind of off his head one night, picked up his mate's camera. Um, and he kind of took what he thought was a load of photos. And then that, that's such <laughs> there a... There was no film. In there it. was no film. In, which is such, that is such a great story because he tells it so well where he's like, well, I picked up a camera and, you know, I took a load of photos. And the next day I said to my mate, oh, but you've got some good photos on there, haven't you? And you're expecting him to have this kind of epiphany where he looks at the pictures and goes oh, fuck, I'm not bad, am I? No, there's no, there's no camera in the lens. <laughs> it but, was just on LSD. Yeah, but he, but he obviously remembered loving the experience of taking photos. And mm-hmm. so he loved it more for the experience than the actual finished product, which I think is probably kind of actually true of him throughout his life. Even though he, he obviously loves his photos, I think that he got so swept up in the life of it all that that's why he ends up in 1996 having a, a quadruple heart bypass because he's basically snorting cocaine in his morning coffee. Yeah. I mean, part of being a photographer, especially the line of work that he's in, you have to create that experience because you need the person in front of the lens to be experiencing that kind of vibe. And that's what he is he's recording. Yeah. It was very clever that you didn't actually see... I mean, they wouldn't have had any footage of this, but you didn't see his kind of inverted quote technique in, during a photo shoot until the very end when you yeah. suddenly see him on set of a, of a photo shoot. Like, ah, 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 I like it. I like it. it I like great. it. I almost, almost orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, stay with me, stay with me. Yeah, stay with me. Loving it, loving it. It's so good. I've got a like bit a... of um, a little bit of Rasputin. One <laughs> <laughs> is... What it, what I feel so much with this film is that it really is about memories. It's about his memories. How do you feel about him being the only narrator? Oh yeah, that's true. I didn't even, I didn't even think of that actually because you you get to hear him his um, his audio recordings when he's chatting to David Bowie and Lou Reed and yes. Um, so you you don't feel like he's the only voice in the room, but yeah, I hadn't really. I hadn't really thought about that because they don't they don't sit Debbie Harry down and, and do a, a piece no. of the camera interview with her they don't you know they could have had Bowie at the time because I think the film was made before Bowie died they could have had this yeah, person and that person but it's just him yeah and I think that actually he because I've read an interview with, that he did with Vice magazine mm-hmm. um, and obviously Vice are the ones who shot this film yes um, but he in his interview he said that he would never have done this documentary. He wouldn't have taken part in this documentary if they had wanted to do a very traditional, um, you know, shooting heads, talking heads kind of documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually I think it's kind of hilarious that he is the only voice because I think that's the way he kind of wanted it actually. From what I read in the interview, he was integral to the creation of the documentary. He was integral to the edit of the documentary he kept pushing back against the director whose name I've just completely forgotten. Barnaby um, Clay. Yeah, him. Um, he kept pushing back against the director saying, I don't want to keep going on about my near-death experience where I overdosed on cocaine. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it, it sounds like this is very much his version of his life. Um, but he was there. So <laughs> you, kind of, you kind of have to believe him. Why would you not believe him? Um, well that's the thing I mean with memories I think photography with memories is quite unique 
we are seeing his images. So we see what he saw when he looked through the camera. So we are seeing his memories. He remembers being on set with Debbie Harry or doing a photo shoot with David Bowie, like the one where he's looking in the mirror mm. or maybe later on in, you know, about 2003, he shot Bowie. We, we saw that. But we are seeing exactly what Mick Rock saw through the lens and we are seeing what he saw on set. So we're seeing his memories. Yeah. Yeah, he's recorded his own history. Except when it comes to the heart attack. Mm. And then it goes into a recreation. Yeah, that was really confusing because I was like, holy shit, have they actually got um, photographic kind of evidence slash footage of mm. his actual heart attack? And so for a minute then I was like, Christ, what are the chances? But then I was like, oh, okay. It's... But it's done really well. It's it not... was really good. It's not tacky, is it? No, like that's why another reason he wanted to do this with... Um, Director Clay, where his name was, sorry. Director Clay. Director Clay, <laughs> the, the famous dictator. Um, no, he wasn't like that at all. I think that actually Rock was the dictator. In the, but anyway, no, the reason he wanted to do it with him is because he hadn't shot a documentary before. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an artist himself and he did lots of short films. And so he brings a really artistic sensibility to the whole thing. And, um, you know, it made me think of uh, that great film, The Imposter by Bart Layton, which is, it's a documentary, but it's shot like it's a thriller. Right. It's from 2012, I think. It's really quite recent. Um, And it's about, it's a very, very strange case where a young boy in kind of America, like I think it's deep South America or somewhere like that, little kind of blonde, blue-eyed boy just disappears. And then years later, they, the police say that they found him. He's in France. And the guy is clearly kind of, He's not blue-eyed and blonde. He's almost Hispanic-looking. He's got a really strong French accent. And yet this family who'd lost their son took him in as their son. He'd, like, got a really bad blonde dye job. But anyway, the, the point is that the film is... I'm gripped on that. Yeah, I know. You should watch it. It's, <laughs> okay. it's brilliant. The Imposter. The Imposter is great, but it's shot like a thriller. Um, so it brings, like, a really artistic sensibility to a true story. Yeah. And I think that something similar happens with this. Yeah, like subject and form are completely matched here. If yeah. you're making a documentary about a free-spirited, very creative, very spiritual guy, then your film has to be very creative, very spiritual, very slightly free-form. Yeah, but it didn't push it so far that you end up um, kind of just, you know, losing it. No. It's not, it's still... It's, it's a tight still... 90 minutes. Yeah, it is. And and it helps that it uses a lot of Mick Rock's own um, video footage as well. Yes. So kind of behind the scenes stuff that he shot throughout his career. Um, so you really feel that you're on this journey with him in... And it's more like the editing that really... And even the music and stuff that kind of um, lifts it into that more spiritual, psychedelic kind of feeling. A completely psychedelic at one point. It goes a bit 2001. Yeah, it does. And it goes into his heart yeah yeah and we see everything he's he's done up until that point yeah there's an old native american thing i think it's native american where they say you know when you take a photograph of someone you're actually taking a bit of their soul oh yeah that's um, yeah that's a really big thing yeah yeah so if that's the case then mick rock has the souls of all <laughs> these people within him and yeah i have the souls of all the people i have photographed within me 
That's a really nice way of thinking about it because I think that Mick Rock would completely agree with that philosophy. Yeah. Because he's all about that kind of the spiritual side of things. I just love that he says, he essentially doesn't say, this, is, this isn't his direct quote, but he essentially says that yoga was his um, gateway drug to cocaine. <laughs> like he did, he did yoga first and yeah. then he did cocaine. Whereas most people, as far as I know, do the complete opposite where they try to replace the cocaine with something else and it ends up being yoga or something like that. Yeah, or golfing, Alice, Alice Cooper's. Oh, wow. Well, well um, he says, I'm after your fucking aura. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't care about anything, just wants your aura in the photo. And I, I kind of, I get that. I get that. I, I don't refer to it as aura. I refer to it as the character. I'm always mm. looking for someone's vibe or someone's character in my portraits of them. I'm not interested in just someone sat by a brick wall. Yeah. There has to be a reason why that brick wall is in the photo. It's like, what's the tea? What's your tea? <laughs> my as, tea. As RuPaul would say. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not necessarily about the truth because yeah. are any of his photos, can any of his photos be considered truth? In what sense? Well, is he being objective or is he being subjective? Is he looking at people and going, I'm going to record you as you are? Or is he going to be subjective and put his own opinions and his own um, influences into the image, which, mm. which will change that person? Well, he kind of did both, didn't he? Because he, he did shoot um, like his, his kind of almost diary footage that he shot is, is very much um subjective mm-hmm. whereas when he's when he's talking about the, how he was dressing certain people he was saying deborah harry is marilyn monroe and he was saying that um that the other female singer she was elvis joan jett joan jett exactly yeah. and um yeah so he was putting his own meaning onto them and kind of writing writing on them in his own particular way um, but that doesn't mean that he didn't capture an essence of them I think it's maybe, I mean, I'm not a photographer, but my, what I imagine is that you want to draw a certain thing out of them that is already there. Because if, if you can't draw that out, it's not there. But if you can draw a certain characteristic out of them, it's still a part of them. You just happen to have enabled them. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And like, I photographed Andrew Pollock from yeah. Bat Out of Hell. Mm. And to that make was some my, great photos. Thank you very much. To make my life easier, I said to him, and I, I, and I planned this in, in advance, I said, I don't want you to be Andrew. I want you to be Strat, the character from uh, Bat Out of Hell. It just, it makes my life a lot easier hmm. because now I'm photographing a character. I yeah. can interact with the character. And it makes his life a lot easier because now he knows what I need and what I want. So he, he's been playing this character for 18 months now. He can just slip into that. We had a great 20 minutes and we sat down and did the, po- the other podcast I do, the recording. Mm-hmm. It's almost a shorthand. If you can tap into one thing or two things with someone and then boom, you, you build up off of that. So for him, Joan Jett is Elvis. Great. I'll start with that. Get her an overcoat like a, you know, a teddy boy coat, slick her hair in a certain way, then you go from there. Debbie Harry is Marilyn Monroe. Great, we've got a starting point. Let's continue on. Mm, that's Mick Rock saying. That's Mick hey, Rock. I've, just, I've got a spiritual message from you. I, I just feel like you're talking about me. He's not from Coronation Where is he? <laughs> he does sort of go into that northern accent a bit, doesn't <laughs> yeah. he? I'm taking a photo. <laughs> oh, you kissed a boy. I've done it all fucking many times, I have. Do you know what really struck me was... So when I was at uni, we did, we did um, study gender and music. 
And I actually got a good grade on that because I found it fascinating mm-hmm. um, on that module. And um, we talked about like cock rock and all that kind of stuff. Watching this film, I, I just I'm reminded of how amazing the glam rock scene was mm-hmm. and how 100%. I don't really know that much about it, but how nowadays we kind of have RuPaul and like drug drug. We have drag pageantry yes and it's all kind of it's it's like sexless and it's not erotic whereas glam rock was really edgy and really fucking sexy and dangerous and dangerous because it's like it was illegal back then to have you know homosexuality was illegal in the it still wasn't 60s yeah 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 not necessarily in by the end of the 60s it it was decriminalized within part decriminalized part yeah part part decriminalized in in your own home yeah but no, it was. It was completely dangerous. And yeah. I don't see anyone in the music industry now who is acting in that way. It's also, mm. and this is talking, I've been on the inside there. It's so planned out. It's so mm. thought out and it's so contrived. Yeah. Well, because Mick Rock talks about that relatively early on in the documentary. He says how people keep are really trying to brand him. Mm. And he's kind of resistant to this idea that you turn yourself into a brand. Yeah. Which is really true because he was just kind of living his authentic life, doing his photographs, you know, you know, having this great career. And there's nobody kind of going, oh, how are we going to turn you into a brand? But he wasn't even looking for a career. It just no. happened like, oh, someone said, I'll give you five quid to shoot the band. Then he met Sid Barrett and Sid Barrett was like, come around and photograph. Yeah. Then, then he got a hundred quid to go shoot Lou Reed. Then David Bowie, then yeah. Iggy Pop, and it just sort of rolled because he was just he was on the inside. He was friends with all these people, and he still mm. is. Yeah, but I get what he means. Like he's always labelled as the man who shot the seventies. Yes, he shot the seventies, but he's also done so much more work since the seventies because the seventies ended in nineteen seventy nine, yeah. and that was thirty nine years ago. I loved all of those conversations that he had with David Bowie, and it it really. Like Mick Rock says, you know, you can tell when you're in the presence of intelligence yeah, because you can see it in the photographs and you can see that in all the Bowie photographs. And like I grew up with Labyrinth. So I was kind of like a (laughs) I was like a Muppet Bowie fan. I wasn't like a proper Bowie fan. Um, And I don't think I've ever felt cool enough to like class myself as a Bowie fan. But actually, when you see him and when you listen to him speak and you see what he did on stage and this really clear-eyed intelligence that he had about doing these really quite audacious and exciting things. And the way he talks about himself, I don't know, it just, it just really hammered home, like, what a loss that, he, that he's gone now. It's just really sad. And he was very almost, almost self-effacing because while the mm. world was thinking, David Bowie is a god, Mick Jagger is a god, Lou Reed is a god, he was just saying, you know, an interviewer asked him, why are you here? What are you putting forward and he'd never really thought of it and he just said well i'll just be david bowie the yeah. first david bowie that's all yeah and he said that i we are the original false prophets yeah we only exist in the audience's imagination which is just true is that's that's well, they, such an incisive thing to say they exist in the audience imagination but also in the photos that mick rock yeah took. yeah it's fantasy it's complete fantasy yeah yeah do you do you have like a, a favorite mick rock image yeah um i love the transformer cover the lou reed transformer cover i love the raw power image of iggy 
where he's holding onto the, the mic stand and he's sort of all washed out in orange and he looks like it looks like an iguana yeah, as, Rick, yeah. as Rick Rock said um, but then I do like some of the later stuff like that stuff with with Father John Misty at the end yeah. and he's got his fingers towards the camera because he's going do what you like with your hands do what you like with your hands yeah. and I'm like oh do you really want to do that sunshine that is a bit <laughs> stupid and then when you see the picture it's they like look, they look great yeah because yeah. he's got that wide lens on yeah um, he's done some stuff with no, it's not Jimmy Kimmel I always get these two mixed up it's Jimmy Kimmel but who's the the guy who was on Saturday Night Live but has his own oh uh, Jimmy Nail <laughs> with his crocodile shoes <laughs> what's his he's a, he's a talk show host but he's a comedian as Jimmy well. Fallon Jimmy Fallon so he's done some really cool stuff with Jimmy Fallon where he's like a bit of a, a white washed out um, mime face and he's got like uh, not dungarees um, suspenders yeah, braces yeah. on yeah um, I, I really like that kind of playful stuff and that's that's a real shorthand when you're playing around with someone's image like that mm. because immediately you go you don't need to tell the viewer so much you don't need to go this is jimmy fallon here's a comedian what i'm doing is i'm kind of subverting this and making him to a mind because he talks a lot mm -hmm. you just go you get all that immediately to do that with someone who's just a general member of the public is a lot harder yeah i guess that's why we like celebrity photos so much and why andy Leibovitz's work is so so people people are connected to it so much and David LaChapelle because it takes the idea of who these people are reduces them to a character and almost subverts them yeah. or like reiterates a certain stereotype about them like the image of do you know the image of um, that Annie Leibovitz took of Donald Trump about 10-12 years ago mm. so got a giant jet the Trump jet on the runway and they're round the back of it and the back stairs are open and Melania is on the stairs in a gold bikini but she's like eight months pregnant <laughs> and then off to the side in what looks like a, like, like, like a Lamborghini or something it, with the door open is Trump one foot in one foot out just sat there Wow! and it just speaks volumes about their relationship and how it's all about gold and money mm. I mean, yeah, I think the best photographers tell that, that story, don't they? They find a way to tell a story in a picture, mm. which is... Well, that's all photography it's a real is. art, it's, yeah. It's storytelling. Yeah. And if you're not telling a story, I, this is my personal opinion, if you're not telling a story, you shouldn't really be taking a photograph because that's just a document. Mm. Like when you take my photograph. <laughs> <laughs> but even then, I try and be subjective. I don't just want it to be objective. Like yeah. my favourite, we've done, what, four, five shoots over the years? Yeah. My favourite is the one we did at your last place yeah in your office and i made it like all washed out and green and you were wearing that creatures of the night t-shirt and that to me says this guy writes horror yeah yeah no, that was a cool photo yeah it is yeah. i know thank you very I much know. yeah it's still on my website while i was watching it i was thinking our creative outputs really do differ in in this respect who you and I. Right. So me and Mick Rock, we manipulate light. That's all photography is. It's just manipulating light and then we make an image. So for us, the world is literally our canvas and light is our paint. But for you, a blank piece of paper as a writer must be the most terrifying thing to look at. Oh, it's the worst thing ever. Yeah. 
Like you do anything not to be looking at that blank piece of paper <laughs> or that blank page on the computer screen. It's just the worst. And the flashing cursor constantly judging you. You're going to write yet? You're going to write yet? Mm, got anything coming? No, no, anything, anything. So how do you counter that? Didn't think so. Um, <laughs> that might just be me. I don't know. I'll just watch cat videos. <laughs> yeah. How do you counter it? You just write anyway. You just go, this is utter shit. This is shit, shit, shit. And you just write. Um, and just then you start going, oh, okay. And you, if you take the pressure off, you immediately are okay. But often a, a trick is to, and I think actually Philip Pullman may have said this in an interview years ago, and I've always thought about it and I've always tried to do it, which is if you're going to finish your day's work, never leave a full blank page. Always try to have something on the page. So if you you finish maybe one paragraph into a new page. That's what, that's a good place to start. Or halfway down a page, just so that you're not going to be like, holy shit, that is a blank page. What am I going to write? Is that what you try and do? I do try to do that. And it does, does really help. Are you addicted to being creative? Yes, absolutely. It's an, it's a mania. It's an absolute mania. Mm. You know, I, I've, this year I published my fifth book, which just sounds so fucking ridiculous. It's not. Um, you've done five <clears throat> books in six years. Six, five, six years. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sort of elbow deep into three other things that I've been messing around with. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I just stop and think, what the fuck am I doing? Why am I doing this to myself? Yeah. But I think that a lot of people like Mick Rock and like you, it, there's a therapy in it. It's a way of um, kind of solidifying your thoughts or a way of figuring out what you're thinking. And sometimes you don't even realize you're thinking or believe you don't believe something until you've thrashed it out on a page. That's how it is for me anyway. I don't know if it's the same for a photographer. Explain what you mean when you don't believe something. So if you write something, if you're writing a review and some of it doesn't ring true and you're like, why is it that? That's like a perfectly well-written sentence. What, what is wrong with that? And you suddenly realize, oh, I don't actually think that. I'm just writing it because it sounds good. Right, I see what you mean. But I don't actually think that. And it's a real... It's a real, um, it's something that comes with experience is figuring out how to actually say what you mean. So for me, because in, in a weird way, your creativity takes place alone. Oh yeah. For me, I need things in front of me. Yeah. I can't, I can't photograph from my laptop. I need to either be in front of a human being photographing them in front of a band, mm. if they're on stage or in, in a studio or on location or out in the field I can't decide whether something is correct or not until I look through the camera. Yeah. It's all to do with... And often I I will walk around with my camera up by my eye because I have to be able to see what I'm... What the camera sees. You know, my eye... Our peripheral vision is wider than most camera lenses. Oh, yeah. And obviously shorter than some camera lenses. Uh So I need... Depending on what lens I've got on, it's going to differ from my eye our eye so i need to be able to look through the camera and decide is this true is this is this the right thing you know what am i doing what what marks am i hitting and what marks do i want to hit Mm. and i think the director of the documentary picked up on this because when in that section when mick has his heart attack on set and we go to his point of view it's actually a camera viewfinder and it's out of focus it was so great yeah it's what a genius such a lovely a, idea but it's just a genius thing to tie together that 
his vision yeah is no it's it's not a separate entity to the camera when you're a photographer do you feel as a writer or as an artist that you should be leaving a legacy similar to what that interviewer asked david bowie you know what are you putting forward and he just says i'll be david bowie the first david bowie that's all do you feel we should be trying to make a a legacy um it's weird actually because getting older i turned 35 this year um so you know i'm not hopefully if i have a nice long happy life i'm not i've got a long time to write as much as i want Mm. but as i get older i definitely do start to think about what i may leave behind um and i think like sometimes i think oh if i die tomorrow i've written these books and they are going to be there after i'm dead and it's it's quite a nice feeling actually it's kind of like a little piece of you is left behind but i mean that's assuming anyone's going to read them but um yeah i suppose it's nice to think that you've contributed something even if you're not necessarily you know even if you don't think it's perfect and everything's you would change and all that kind of stuff but even if people aren't even if you're not necessarily aware of your legacy now no because i always think it's so tragic that um steve larson who did the girl with the dragon tattoo books ah yes he died before the books were a hit oh, really and before the films came out so he's he's you know not only is he left behind this trilogy that he wrote there's also more books that another author has taken over the story for him yeah writing as him yeah in a way yes kind of well yeah. i mean or he finished the fourth one so I think he's just done a fifth one, oh, wow. which is kind of the last one, I think. The Girl in the Spider's Web. But is it, is it based on but, stuff that Thingy Larson had, like a, like a treatment? Or is it just completely brand new? I don't know, to be honest. I think maybe the fourth one was based on some kind of treatment or notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, there's a similar thing with uh, Patrick Ness's A Monster Calls, a book that he wrote that just got turned into a film last year, mm-hmm. where the story actually was... Um, was come up with by another author but then she tragically died and so he picked up her notes and he wrote the book okay um and it's just really sad isn't it is that there's a real bittersweet sense to it where you think these people have had huge success and they'll never know it but is that why they wrote do you write for success no what? no well no that's the thing is you know i don't because i write because i have things i want to say and the stories i want to tell yeah and then you kind of success would be a nice little kind of dessert to go alongside the meal kind of yeah. thing. Um, and it would also mean that I could write again. Yes. That's why you want success. Success is only ever a thing re- you really want because you want to be able to keep doing what you're doing. Yes. Which is you why want I'm, the next advance. Yeah. Which is why Mick Rock has just kind of lucked out so hugely Yeah. because he just could, ca- ca- you know, carry on doing this thing that he loved doing. Well, he was in right place, right time. Yeah. He yeah. just sort of, steamrolled or tripped yeah into that that scene just as things were in the music scene going boom Mm -hmm. yeah he was the right type of person yeah would you hate to die thinking you hadn't done everything you wanted to do creatively oh god yeah definitely when i was writing the third book in my trilogy i had a folder on my computer that was called if i die in capital letters and it was the plan for the book because I couldn't bear to think that if my plane went down or if I got run over by a bus or whatever, that 
that story would be unfinished. And I felt like everyone had to know the end of the story. So who would write so, it? God knows. But I just thought, I've done my part. Yeah. I've got a folder with the stuff in that I need if, you know, if I'm dead. Um, yeah, it would be, it's, yeah, that would be sad. Definitely. But then there's a flip side, right? Because I would hate, I would hate to die thinking I hadn't achieved everything I wanted to achieve creatively. But then on the flip side, you would have, then have to have the mindset of, well, I've done it all now. Yeah. I've done it all. I've, I've done as much creative stuff as I, as I want to, as I feel I need to. I've taught everything I, I know. I've learned everything I possibly can know. So I'm done now. But even that is a kind of death. Yeah, you'll end up like those women on the Royal Housewives of Beverly Hills who, you know, one of them was married to Kelsey Grammer. One of them was like a child actor. Or two of them were, were child actresses. And now they live in these big empty houses in Beverly Hills. And they're just miserably injecting their faces full of stuff. And you just think, cool, that is bleak. <laughs> like, yeah, you've got this amazing house and you're rich as fuck. But they've got nothing to live God, for. You've got nothing going on. That's why you was on this TV show and you're falling out with your friends all the time. And So maybe Mick Rock is, has got the right idea that you, you've got to put yourself so much into your work that it eventually it will kill you. Yeah. yeah. He is the sort of person I believe that will probably die on a photo shoot set. Yeah, and he'd be fine with that. I think he'd be fine with it later on in life. He wasn't fine with it age 42. No, in 1994, true. I think it was. Six. Was it six? Yeah. 96. Um, why is the film, this is what I was going to ask at the beginning, but I forgot. Why is the film called Shot, all in capital letters? Does that stand for something? I would imagine it's because when you get a good shot, it's like, shot! Got the shot! Oh, okay. Got the shot. Got it, okay. So when I finish my book, I can go, book! <laughs> Got it. Book. So that was Shot, the psycho-spiritual mantra of rock directed by Barnaby Clay. Would you recommend this to other people to watch? I would, actually. I really, really enjoyed it. Just to other creatives or to anyone? I think to anyone. Well, I mean, especially to music fans, because it is a fascinating insight into, like, that scene, you know, the 70s. Yeah. Um, But I think I'd recommend it to anyone who just generally loves film and loves a good story. Yeah. Because you get such a great insight into this guy's life. And he's such an entertaining person as well. Like he's just full of solid gold sound bites. Yeah. <laughs> he's, just, he's like, like a sound bite machine. He is. He's like, when he says like, I'm an assassin. I'm coming in and I'm going to get you. Yeah. And it's like, oh God, what? Well, what's oh. your fucking aura? Yeah. <laughs> um, I love it. I, this is something I'll probably watch at least once or twice a year. I've watched it three times this year already. Oh my God. I watched it is... twice just for this. No, but what's 2001 Space Odyssey going to think if you start watching another film more than you watch it? <laughs> There's plenty of spaces. <laughs> this one, actually, you know, I watched 2001 with a live orchestra. How cool would this be with live bands playing yeah. the music? That's the thing is, could they not get the rights for a lot of David Bowie songs? Because a lot of the music... They have Bowie songs in it, Did but they? as it moves along, the yeah. different bands come in. So you get mm. David Bowie, Lou Reed. I was surprised. I mean, he obviously said to, it, it, you know, they got the rights probably because of him. Yeah. And the other documentary, like there was a Beatles documentary the other year, all about Sergeant Pepper, and they couldn't get the rights to one oh, single Sergeant Pepper song, <laughs> which is a shame. What's the point? <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what's wrong with John, not John, and he's dead. What's wrong with Paul McCartney? Why can't he just say, use the songs? I don't think he owns... That, that uh, era of Beatles stuff. He doesn't oh, own right. them. 
Yeah, he, he owns his, his Wings stuff and his solo stuff, but I don't think he owns half the Beatles so shit. So it's the fucking money-grabbing studio. Well, Jackson had it at one point and then sold it. Huh. Come and talk to us on Twitter. We're at Tornstubs Pod. Give us a follow. We will follow you back. And subscribe to us on the Apple Podcast app. And if you like film, music, television, theatre and culture, head to movetotrash.co.uk. We're off to shoot each other's fucking auras. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I think I'm Joshua winning. Cut. <laughs>